Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, JJ Peterson. Hi, JJ. <laughs> you are being very animated right I now. I am. Your arms are flailing. You're, you're pointing to the and sky. And there's a reason for that. My hands are above my head. They are. I'm showing you. You're reaching towards me aggressively. And, and apparently this is supposed to make you feel more comforted. I don't think it does at this moment. Today's Your guest, hands are like flying at me across the table. Today's guest <laughs> will disagree adamantly. Uh-huh. Her name is Vanessa Van Edwards. She is the author of a book called Captive, which I confess I did not read before the interview and immediately picked it up two After. nights ago. <laughs> yeah, because we, we interviewed her two, ni- two days ago. Picked up, and I'm obsessed with it. Really? Yeah, well, yeah. you actually even just mentioned it last night. We were at an event. Yes. And all of a sudden, you turned to me and Changed. you said, do you know where you're supposed to stand in this room? And I was like, no. And you, you said, don't stand by the door and don't stand by the bathroom. And you told me where to stand. I don't That's know right. if it's in the interview, so I don't want to like give it away. But you That actually, part's last not night, in the interview, but it's in the book. Yeah, last night. So you said, don't stand by the door, don't stand by the bathroom, but stand in the place where people are walking away from the bar. That's right. There is a place to stand at an event that she has proven yeah. through research gets the most networking opportunities. So you left. We were at this event last night. You left and I went in and there was no bar, but there was like a snack table. There was like food buffet and I actually tested it. So yeah. there was a place where there were crab cakes, which were very popular yeah. and beef skewers. And so <laughs> I went to that table versus the veggie table and I'm standing just like five feet away, like watching. And I made eye contact with everybody that walked away from wow. the table. Yeah, The book is about how to interact with people in a winsome way. Yeah. How to win friends and influence people. It's a research kind of version of that. I tell Vanessa in the interview, I geek out on this stuff. I watch YouTube videos. I actually order books. And most of them have one or two little lessons, and I really don't learn a whole lot. Sorry to say that. This book is completely different. And we you know we have no vested interest in anybody buying this book. Yeah. So that's not Other I'm just than telling you success. if you geek out on this sort of thing, how to make a great first impression, how to make people like you, how to really make people feel cared about and how to genuinely actually we care about people. Yeah. But a lot of times they don't know it. It doesn't come across that way. Yeah, so how do you do yeah. it? Everything is research oriented and I absolutely love this book and I'm kicking myself for not having read it before the interview because I, I think the interview would have gone 10 times as long. We went 40 minutes and we got three questions asked and there were 10 in my briefing (laughs) that Susie so lovingly put together. We didn't get there. I think it's something that we should all know about because it's about making people understand that they're cared for, that you like them, that they're important. Yeah. So, I mean, what kind of better world would you create if you were able to do that? Yeah. So one of the things that she says, and of course I was doing this in a crazy, exaggerated way. you doing it right now. So back, back, (laughs) the first thing that you look at when you meet somebody she asked me this question, Don, what do you think? I said, eyes, smile. She said, no, Don, it's the hands. Really? It's the hands. There's a survival mechanism within us mm-hmm. that basically needs to know whether you have a weapon. Interesting. And so you subconsciously somehow will look to the hands. So right now, both of us have our hands on the, on table, the table. Yeah. And that's a way of saying, you know, you're safe. Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. You know, and she even talks about like, let's say you go to a wedding uh, a reception. Reception. Right? Mm-hmm. You go to the reception and you see some friends across the room. Yeah. You want to show them somehow, kind of boast your hand. You say, hey, good to see you. And you appointed them. And then that's a trap. You're not going to meet anybody new if you go talk to your friends. 
And so you want to go opposite the bar. You don't want to be where people are registering or signing the guest book because something else is on their brain. You don't want to be the first person they talk to when they walk in the room because they're looking past you to see if they know anybody. They're looking for comfort. That's a terrible place. You don't want to be between them and the food because they're trying to get to the food. Well, yeah. <laughs> you want to be where they get a drink and they're walking back from the bar. Wow. They've already scanned the room and now they're saying, I'm ready to talk. And you're the dude fishing right there. Well, you are already applying this because, I mean, you literally, last night, well, you brought it up. I did. Yeah. Well, I also gave a speech last night. Yeah. And, you know, they introduced me. I come out from behind the curtain. Yep. And I did it. I kind of waved with both hands. <laughs> you did. And literally, the gesture I was making <laughs> was, I don't have I'm a safe. weapon. I don't have a weapon. <laughs> I, don't I, was have a weapon. I saw you do that last night. Yeah. That's so and funny. And then I put my hands on, on either the side. Podium. Of, it's yeah. rare to have a book or an interview or somebody where you just immediately have things that you can do. Yeah. And I don't know if it's making a difference, but it feels like it's making a difference. <laughs> it made yeah, you more comfortable. Here's the other thing she talks about in this book. I'm going to talk just about the book. Yeah, Because yeah. I think there's so much good stuff in this book. She talks about the posture, an Olympian. Mm-hmm. When the Olympian loses, the posture they take is head down, shoulders scrunched in, arms close to the body. Yeah. Right? You know, you're defeated. Yeah. The posture somebody takes when they win is open chest, shoulders back, arms up. Yeah. And so she said, look, like it or not, subconsciously, we like people who, one, are safe, and two, win. And so you want to have the posture, open-bodied, armed posture of a winner, because people will want to associate with you. Wow. They want to, They want to associate with winners who care about them. Wow. So the two things that you wouldn't want to communicate are, one, I'm a loser, and, and two, two, I don't care about yeah. you or I'm a threat. <laughs> yeah. So hands in pockets, I literally want to, every pair of pants I speak in, I want to sew my pockets. Yeah, because I think a lot of times, like when I see myself put my hands in my pocket, it's me trying to put things at ease. I'm just relaxed. Right. I, so I think I'm, I'm communicating, hey, I'm casual, I'm on your level, I'm relaxed. But in reality, I'm closing myself up to the audience. And well, so and they they're wondering, say, can I trust you? Yeah. And so when your hands are in your pockets, they're subconsciously thinking, well, what's he going to do with his hands? Interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? Tim, our COO, who's mm-hmm. a good friend of mine, has asked me to stop being self-deprecating about my people skills. <laughs> he says, I have good people skills and stop making people think you don't. Yeah. And I really, I do, I really love people. But I would say, on a scale, people probably like you a little more than <laughs> they like me. <laughs> but they like me. Know. Tim's going to get mad. They, people like me a lot. But you have, a more, you have a more winsome charm. So I'm going to learn something from you here. Okay. When you meet somebody at a party, yeah. at a disco, yeah. and you're talking yeah. to them. <laughs> at the disco. I just imagine you go to yeah. discos. I don't know. I have been to silent discos. Those are fun. <laughs> I don't know what that is. We'll talk about it later. It's another thing. Yeah. So in lieu of asking what do you do or how yeah. have you been, which... Vanessa will say in this interview, do not ask those questions, and she tells you why. Yeah. I'm gonna, you have to listen to the interview to find out. you got to ask other questions. Yeah. What are some of your go-tos? Honestly, I don't have a go-to, but I try very hard not, not to, to ever ask those ask questions. Those questions. Well, not how necessarily you how you've been. Sometimes I will if I haven't seen somebody, but I really am very intentional well, about not asking. Well, if you're getting to know somebody. Getting to know somebody, I don't ask what they do. In fact, actually, this happened just today. My neighbor, I had a neighbor who moved in next door. I have not met them yet. And today yeah. I ran home for lunch and she was there. And the first thing- Did you she, walk with your hands up and- ha! 
I did. I waved really big. I actually waved really big. Safe. I got out of my car because I was driving away when she came out of the house. But she came over and we started talking. And it's really hard not to like in that first few minutes go. So what do you guys do? What you know? Yeah. But I asked you know how their move had been. I had seen that their in laws were there helping them. So I asked about that where they were from, getting to know them on a different level. It was very hard. I intentionally did not ask what do you do. Yeah. By the end of the conversation, she told me, but it wasn't because that was what I led with. And there's a reason Vanessa says don't ask that. She said you can ask variations on that question. Yeah. So my go-to is often, what's the next big thing you're looking forward to? Mm. You know, And so yeah. that gets people to kind of tell me what they a do one. a little bit, yeah. which is another trick. She would say... Ask questions you're actually interested in the answer to, and people will like you more because you're interested in yeah. the answer. Yeah. Can I share one more thing that's in the book and not in the, not uh, in the interview? Because I want to yeah, ask you this question. Like, you're, are you giving a lot of spoilers no, away here? None of this <laughs> is in the interview. Okay, that's she, good. She hands around it. This stuff is in the book. <laughs> yeah. And again, we have no vested interest in this. But the book get is called the book. Captivate, but get the book because we want everybody to win and we yeah. don't care if you buy it from us. But she called me an ambivert, which means uh, I have, have a gills. siren on my head. Yes, yeah, I have gills. A high-functioning introvert. Mm -hmm. And in the book, it says context actually matters. So it asks you to rate, I don't know if it was a scale of 1 to 10, environments that drain you versus environments that give you energy. And I'd never, ever thought about that. She says things like nightclub, bar, cafe, coffee shop. And I'm literally going one, 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 meaning they drain me. Boardroom, 10. Yeah. Gives me energy. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Like if we're all sitting around in a decently small group and we're talking about achieving goals, yeah, I am as happy as a clam. Yeah. I just couldn't be any happier. And I never knew that. So she would actually say, okay, try to control as much of your social interaction into the spaces where you actually do well and thrive. I thought this is revolutionary. You know, we do story brand workshops. I mm. love teaching. I love it. I don't mind facilitating, but in a room where there's 150 people and I feel like everybody wants a piece of me, that is a little bit more difficult. And then I thought, well, what if we did lunches where 10 people sat around and we just did lunch together and we all went around there answering the question, what's your greatest marketing challenge? And I literally thought I would come out of that lunch on cloud nine. Yeah. Yeah, So you're actually thinking of ways that you could utilize your personality and your gifts. Would you say boardroom, coffee shop, nightclub, bar, Lobby at church, where? Anywhere where there's activity for me is comfortable. Like if we're doing something together. Um, like, like it say, can't be standing around making small talk. It's yeah, got to be small like talk's we're not great. curling. I, yeah, we're curling <laughs> or, or like building something together. But like boardrooms, I'm okay with because I think here's, here's actually where it comes down to for me on some of that. If I know the rules of the room. Ah. So like if in a boardroom, I can be comfortable because I know those rules. If I'm at a club and I'm there with a group of friends, then I know the rules of with my friends. So I know how to kind of interact. But if I'm just showing up someplace, I don't know who the people are. I don't know, quote unquote, what the rules are of the room. That's what makes me uncomfortable. So I can actually be comfortable in any room, one-on-one or large crowds. You just have to know know the rules. I have to know the rules. Fascinating. I'm only like 50 pages into this book. And you're all about it. I'm completely in. I Next time, it. when you come to a story around workshop, you're going to be dazzled. <laughs> you're going to be arms I'm gonna, waving. I'm going to be doing all my tricks. You're going to have the open, <laughs> open winner pose. That's right. I'm going to do it. the handshake. She tells you how to shake hands. Thumb up. If you have your the back of your hand up, you're trying to dominate, dominate the person. Yeah. And if your palm is up, you're submissive, submissive and weak. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't know straight, that either. Straight ahead, thumb up. Yeah. Yeah. I always just put my hand out like a lady and I get on one knee <laughs> and it's never worked for it's me. It's weird. It's I don't never know worked for me. <laughs> people think you're awkward at human interaction. We should probably stop telling people how to do this and talk and to the person to who the knows expert. how to do yeah. this. Yeah. Her name is Vanessa Van Edwards and we JJ and I went long in this intro because I geek out on this stuff. Anyway, here's my conversation with the author of Captivate, a book about how to make people like you, how to make people like you, how to force them to like you. Vanessa, not captives, <laughs> captives. not captives. Captivate, oh, shoot. Captivate. Yeah, That's captivate. a whole different book. Yeah, it I didn't is, even really. think about that. Yeah. Vanessa Van Edwards. Here we go. It's a great conversation. <laughs> Vanessa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I have to tell you, I geek out on stuff like your book, the stuff that your book is about. And I've perused it in order to record this podcast, but had no idea what I was getting into. I just wanted to even not do the podcast and just read the book. And I thought, wait a second, I've got the author here. I've probably ordered 10 books on things like how to talk to people at a party, how to make a first impression. I'm not even going to name any names. They're just a little shallow. They're not quite there. And your book is not only well-researched, it's my kind of book. I mean, it's research plus practical application plus you're segmenting audiences. Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you this kind of thinker? Are you this kind of thinker? And then it's just really practical tools. Do you do personal coaching? No. So I used to do coaching back in the day, but because I have now, I think we're at like 150 coaches, they coach for me and then I coach oh, them. Wow. So I used to, and I used to love it. And I wonder, Don, I don't know, are you an ambivert, an extrovert or an introvert? I would say, I think I'm an introvert, but here's why. In fact, Betsy and I even had this conversation this morning. Had to fly to Chicago last week, did a 75-minute talk, and then did an hour-long sort of book signing. And the 75-minute talk and the hour-long book signing are part of it. There's two hours before that that you're doing sound uh -huh. checks and you're interacting with people. And then getting to the airport, flying, you know, middle seat on Southwest. By the time I get home, I'm really exhausted. Then we have a party that night that, you know, friends are at, I need to be at, a book release for somebody else the next day. And Sunday, I finally got off. Monday, I'm physically exhausted. And yet, really, all I did was hang out with people. So the willingness is there, but it physically is tiring. And so I've actually given an enormous amount of thought because I, I love people. I'm in an extrovert's job. I enjoy hanging out with folks. And I'm trying to figure out why is this tiring where somebody else says it gives them energy. And I have all sorts of theories that are completely ungrounded about, well, I'm just <laughs> insecure or... Things that I'm good at don't make me tired. So if I was just better at interacting with people in a big party, maybe it wouldn't make me tired. So I feel like I've got the coach of the coaches, <laughs> free 30 minutes of consulting. I'm going to use every second I can get. And I think the audience, there's plenty of people who are going to identify. Yeah, no. So I think that this was my inkling when you were saying that you also geek out on this stuff is that we are probably very similar in the sense that we are ambiverts. And most people are ambiverts. What the problem is, is that introvert kind of was the term of the decade, you know, yeah, for a while. Yeah. But it's more complicated than that, you're saying. Far more. And also, so here's how you kind of know if introvert, extrovert never quite fit you, or you feel like you sometimes flip flop in between, we have to think of extroversion as a scale or a spectrum. Okay. Extroversion, if you think of it as a scale or a spectrum, you dial up or dial down. So it's very rare that someone is just an introvert or just an extrovert. And what changes that are the inputs in our system. So for example, 
you can be more extroverted around the right people. So around certain friends, around your family where you're very comfortable, around certain colleagues, but then you can dial down or flip into introversion around the wrong people. So for example, people who push your buttons, people who intimidate you, people you want to impress. And so in that way, I think that our extroversion, we have to think of it as more of a a fluid scale. And that's helpful because, and I wonder if this is the case for you, Don. So I also have similar things, especially on book tour, where I am an ambivert, so I can be extroverted. But there's research that finds that actually more than toxic people, the people that drain us are actually the people who we are ambivalent about. Hmm. You're just not interested or you don't have an opinion or you don't, you don't want to dive into their story. There's two interesting aspects of ambivalence. And I think a lot about ambivalence, especially recently, because I don't know if you have this, but you know, as an adult, we can choose our friends, right? We, we no longer are in school or forced into relationships a lot. If you're an entrepreneur, you're hiring the people you work with, or you work kind of virtually or on a fluid team. So ambivalence is kind of defined by two things. One, it could be what you just mentioned. So not really having a vested interest or not having a hook or not like, for example, if you're doing a sound check with an AV guy you're not going to have a long-term relationship with them. And so there's not much there that you have to talk about right off the bat. So you have to really work at it. The second one is where it gets more dangerous. And this is the one I think we really have to be careful of, which is we are not sure if they like us and we're not sure if we like them. If we're all being honest, I beg the grace of all listeners because I'm going to be a little more vulnerable and open on this podcast than normal. I beg your grace. Please don't label me a bad person or a good person. But if we're all being honest, that's a lot of initial relationships. That's a lot of when you meet somebody, you're kind of going, is anything going to happen here? Or are we just going to pat each other on the back and wish each other the best and move on? Yes, exactly. And I think we're afraid to say that. You know, I think that in this culture, the like culture, we have to like everyone or like everything, but actually it's a much more complicated process. Here's the problem. That takes up a lot of mental energy. So they did this one study, it was with police officers, and they looked at police officers' work environment, and they asked police officers to categorize everyone they work with. And by the way, if you have a piece of paper and a pen next to you, don't do it in your office. You don't want anyone to see the list. But if, you're, <laughs> if, you're, if you're private or in your notebook, just make a list of, I would say, the five to 10 people in your inner work circle, people you regularly see on a daily basis. I call this like your inner professionals. And then also make a list of like the five to 10 people who are in your outer work circle. So maybe a boss's boss or a client's secretary or you know people who they affect you, but they're not directly related. If you look at that list and you actually put a plus next to each person where you are sure that you like them or they like you, that would mean that there is 100% like there. But most people cannot get two pluses. Right? Most people, maybe you like them, maybe they get a question mark, maybe they get a minus. So they found that police officers who had more question marks versus toxic people actually had lower productivity, they took more sick days, and they were less happy at work. So you mean police officers who were able to say, I don't like that person, or I do like that person, actually have more social energy? Yes, because what happened was, is the police officers who said, that person I don't like, I don't get along with them, they knew it. In their head, there was no mental energy given to them. They didn't ask them to lunch. They didn't think, oh, should I invite them to my barbecue? They didn't think, you know, I should go over and schmooze at their desk. It was like, yeah. nope, that's not my person. These are my people. Whereas the ambivalent people where you walk through the office and you're like, should I say hi? Ugh, are we due for a lunch? Does that person like me? Are we okay on a team? That is so draining for our social energy that that can flip an extrovert into ambiversion and an ambivert into introvert. 
you know, I grew up in the church and there's a little bit of a feeling of you're really supposed to care about everybody. And then I'm in a job, as are you, especially you, where your opinion of them, even though you're just meeting them, it means a lot. We all hear these stories of strangers who've met Bill Murray, and Bill Murray was just exceptionally fun and loving and kind. And, and even just last night, there's a bunch of documentaries coming out. I think they're all going to be wonderful. But I watched the HBO documentary about Fred Rogers, about Mr. Rogers, and just his absolute kindness and willing to sit down with anybody. I mean, strangers would write him letters saying, my father never told me that he was proud of me. Are you proud of me? And he would sit down and handwrite a letter saying, yes, I am so proud of you. You know, And I compared that to myself, and I thought, I'm horrible. I'm a horrible human being. <laughs> and it's not that I don't think there's very many people who've ever met me who thought I was unkind. So I'm not confessing like I'm a jerk or, or anything like that. But there is this holding ourselves to standards that are so far out of our realm that we feel guilty. One thing about a police officer who says, that's not my person. This is my person. They probably don't feel guilty about those decisions. Yes. Okay. So first of all, I think that comparing ourselves to Mr. Rogers is probably the, <laughs> the, the highest. Destined for failure. <laughs> yeah, destined, for, destined for failure, Don. Like okay. destined for failure. Okay. So here's where I want to take this next. I think that you're right, that being ambivalent or deciding I don't like that person doesn't mean that you can't treat them with what I call micro positives. So many years ago, I came across the term micro messages. And I've always been fascinated by lie detection and body language. So, uh, you know, I run a, a lab and we do a lot of lie detection research. So the audience knows you helped write and research and consult with the television show Lie to Me. So I was trained by the man that show was about. <laughs> oh, wow. That's even better. But anyway. So I love lie detection research. I find it fascinating. And while I was in doing, we were doing a big study on lie detection cues, I discovered this term micromessages. So micromessages is this idea that we are constantly sending out very subtle nonverbal signals to people around us. A researcher, really interesting woman named Mary P. Rowe, decided to really dive into how our micromessages not only affect people's perception of us, but also affect people's performance she found was she was able to break down micro-messages, non-verbals, into two buckets. Micro-negatives, or what she calls micro-aggressions, and micro-positives. So as you can imagine, like for example, an eye roll would be a micro-aggression or micro-negative. Right, right. Um, a smile or a nod would be a micro-positive. And there are hundreds of them, I and mean, there are a lot of them. Her hypothesis was that managers who have favorite employees show them more micro-positives and who have least favorite employees show them micronegatives. And this actually creates a really, really dangerous cultural cycle. So she took this to the test and she found managers that said, I treat my employees equally. Now, most managers think that they treat their employees equally. Even if they have favorites, they say, no, I try to be really judicious, really fair. So she found those managers, the ones that prided themselves in treating people equally. And then she observed videos of them interacting with their team. And she was able to correctly identify her and her team, which the manager's favorite employees were and who the manager's wow. least favorite was, just wow. accounting the number of messages. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So one is we can see, we can sense who our favorite and least favorite people are. But two, and this is where I think we really have a lot of work to do. She found that the employees who got the micro negatives actually began to perform even worse. So it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. 
It's another version of the famous Pygmalion effect or the expectancy effect that if you treat a low-performing employee like they're low-performing, and by the way, this is very subtle. You think you're being equal, but just very subtly, a little bit more micronegatives, that employee will then go on to perform worse. And your employees that get treated with more micropositives, not only do they act even better, they have higher productivity, more happiness, more efficiency, other employees notice that they're not the favorite and it makes them feel even worse. I want to get into the practical application of this. Like my notes here, I'm dying because you talk about how to make a great first impression in the first five minutes. And then you actually talked about the first five days. And I'd like to get into it all. There's no way we're going to do it. Again, the book is called Captivate. (laughs) I want everybody to read it with me and we'll practice on each other when we see each other at a book signing. But if that's true... What do you recommend a manager do? Let's say he's walking into the office for the first time on Monday morning. What changes based on these micro communications that he or she now understands they need to do differently? What are the tangible changes they need to make? Sure. So first step is self-diagnosis. Okay. There's a reason we hate to listen to ourselves on the phone or hate to watch ourselves on video. It's because all of a sudden our micro messages become very apparent to us and we don't like it. So what I would say, the very first thing you want to do, and this is actually, once you get into it, it's incredibly illuminating. Turn on your video camera or your photo booth or the video app on your phone. And next time you are talking to one of your employees, record just your end. So what we want to start to self-diagnose is how do you look when you're listening, when you're speaking, when you're agreeing, and when you're disagreeing. This is terrifying. Yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. Okay, keep I know, going. I know. <laughs> You've lost half the audience. <laughs> I, know, I know. Everyone's like, oh my God, forget it, forget it. And this is like sales techniques. You, I do a lot of sales trainings and they used to say, put a mirror in front of you. A mirror doesn't really work in the moment. Now you have to actually be able to horribly and wonderfully critique your own video. So first, do this with a couple of your different employees. And you know, you know who your, I wouldn't say least favorite and favorites are, but who you're closer with or who you're not as close with. And I want you to actually make a piece of paper, draw a line down the center, the left is micropositives, the right is micronegatives, and write down every positive cue you see. So that would be, we know this intuitively, nods, smiles, leaning in, usually a heightened volume, passion in our voice, any of those micropositives. And then on the other side, put all your micronegatives. So nodding your head, no, making a contempt microexpression, an anger microexpression, rolling your eyes, closing your eyes, blocking behavior, leaning back, all those. And I want you to see if the data, your data, If you could tell who your favorite and least favorite employees are, who your favorite and least favorite clients are, who your favorite and least favorite companies are to work with, just to see what do you do, what are you showing, because otherwise it's almost impossible to diagnose if we don't know exactly what our tells are. It's very similar to lying. Wow. And then once we realize, okay, I'm doing these things, how powerful is self-awareness to get us to change? Luckily, that is the easiest way to begin to stop doing those cues. So once you see them, it's like all of a sudden seeing that some, an outfit doesn't look good on you or seeing that like shoes don't quite fit you right. Once you notice it, it's really hard to unnotice it. So what I would do then, the next step is, okay, you see how what your micronegative tells are, what your micropositives are. And then on your next few calls, notice how all of these are with calls. The reason for that is because I find lo- calls, phone calls, low pressure practice. It's so hard to do this in person right up front. So On your next few calls, just turn on your photo booth, right? So you can see yourself and then you'll be able to stop yourself while you're actually speaking, while you're actually listening. It's like exercising that muscle. Those two steps can almost always eradicate at least your biggest micro negative tells. 
and then begin to dial up those micropositives. Can somebody learn this as habit or is it always going to be exhausting? You have a bit in your book, as I was looking through it, about dealing with difficult people. And there's a part of me that if I don't like you or if I think you're a bully, I want you to know it. <laughs> you know, and so I'm wondering, where do you stand on that? And would somebody get exhausted trying to do this? Or does it become, because I would love to have it actually as a second nature. I think it's incredibly beneficial to not burn bridges in the moment. And every human being deserves to be cared about and affirmed. I just believe that. Even the worst of human beings deserve to be cared about and affirmed. They are creatures of God. And so I would love to have the kind of personality who says, you know, I really don't like that person. I think they're toxic. I'm not a judge. I'm not going to sit here and rule them toxic and then make them pay for it right here in the room. You know, I'm just going to get out of here and they'll probably like me and I'll survive. I would love to be that kind of diplomatic person, but I'm not as far along the road as I'd like to be. Yeah, you tap on two really important things. So two questions. One is, yes, the entire goal here is muscle memory. And it very much is like working out a bicep or tricep at the gym. The first few tries are going to be much harder. But after a while, I want it like autopilot, like a, you know, a really good golfer or tennis player. The serves at first are very conscious. And then after a while, they just do it on muscle memory. It is the same thing with body language. So yeah, the goal is that this will give you no additional cognitive load. You will be able to do it very naturally. The second issue you brought up is where I think, and this is my personal perspective, so take this as you will. I believe that giving people the benefit of a micropositive is a gift. And that means that no, not everyone deserves it, especially if you have a toxic person or a difficult person. However, I think that as humans, we have to at least try to give them the opportunity to have them rise to the occasion. So for example, if you're with a difficult person, this doesn't mean being inauthentic. This means that you're giving a gift, which is I'm going to try to give this person the benefit of the doubt to make them perform at their very best. So by giving them a micropositive and trying it, they might rise to the occasion. I might be pleasantly surprised. And then I've turned a difficult person authentically into someone who I actually enjoy working with. And if you don't, if it doesn't work out, is it just, you know, politely walk away? Because you do say, which is so healthy, get toxic people out of your life. My rule is the rule of three. So I have a rule of three and this is how I do it. I try to be pretty strict about this because I think this is the only way that we can stay authentic, right? If you're not strict about this, that's how you get into the territory of faking it. Gotcha. And that's gotcha. what I'm horrible. So here's the rule of three. One, three different times. Sometimes someone's having a bad day, right? They're having a bad morning, given the benefit of three different times. Given the benefit of three different contexts. Maybe someone is really, really out of their comfort zone at a party, but if you go to coffee with them or you see them kind of in a more intimate space, they're better. So give them three contexts and then give them three different topics. So sometimes if you get someone who it's not their element or um, they're talking about something that isn't really interesting to them, they can seem disengaged. But if you give them a new topic, they will. So I give them the rule of three, three tries, three contexts, three topics. And if I've tried after all that, tried and tried, then it is a hard out of my life because then they're taking energy away from the people who actually contribute. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Vanessa Van Edwards in just a moment. Listen, if you want to clarify your message in person, you've read the book, maybe you've looked at some online videos, but you're saying, you know, if I could just get away for 48 hours and get this done and then execute it in my marketing collateral, I'm convinced I can make thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. We've seen it happen over and over. All you need to do is sign up for the StoryBrand Marketing Workshop. If you come, we're doing one in June 
in Nashville. Just go to storybrand.com and register for that. And we're doing one in Seattle at the end of July. So if it's hot where you live down south, head to Seattle. It's beautiful there. The weather's going to be amazing, and we're going to be together, and we're going to clarify your message. Here's how it works. You fly in on a Sunday, Sunday night. We have a dessert where we all get to know each other a little bit. We can use some of these human-to-human interaction techniques on each other. It'll be great. And then Monday morning, we got a hard start at 9 a.m. We clarify your message straight through till Tuesday afternoon. Then from Tuesday right after lunch until 5 o'clock, we actually take you through what we call the Story Brand Marketing Roadmap. That is we help you wireframe a website. We help you come up with a lead generating PDF. We help you actually outline some emails that will get people to open them and then buy products. We help you create a sales funnel based on your clear message right in the room. It's really important for us that if you come to a workshop and spend $3,000, you get your money back, that it's an investment that you actually get a return on. I am tired of, and I know you are tired of, marketing companies that take your money and can't get you a return. That's not what this is about. This is an investment in your company, and it's an investment in you. You will walk away having a much more clear idea of why you matter in the marketplace. And not only will you have a clear idea of why you matter, you'll be able to communicate it in seven different categories, messages that you can easily memorize and use to populate your marketing. You will know how to talk about your business again and that's going to make it grow. Storybrand.com is where you register. And again, we have a workshop in June in Nashville and July in Seattle, Washington. I'll see you soon. All right, I want to get to some really practical stuff here. We're not going to be able to get to the first five hours of a relationship, but we can get to the first five minutes. And it's all stuff that everybody listening can actually practice. And I love it. You talk about in the first five minutes... Control, capture, spark, highlight, and intrigue. And I know these people. We just brought in a correspondent named Allie Trowbridge. Allie Trowbridge makes the best first impression in the first five minutes and then keeps it going for the next five years. I don't know how she does it. And then I even had lunch with a, a gentleman the other day from Los Angeles, and I hadn't seen him in a while. But I knew while I was having lunch, he was doing things that he had practiced and learned as an actor and I still walked away going, that guy just makes a terrific first impression. <laughs> and so I thought, I need a little bit of work on this. So walk us through control, capture, spark, highlight, intrigue, things you want to do in the first five minutes of meeting somebody. And it's all based on that it factor. I mean, you talk about there are just some people who seem to have it, and it can be learned and practiced. Yes. Uh, I joke that in the book that I'm a recovering awkward person. And that means that, yes, there are people who naturally have it but it can absolutely be learned. So before I tell you what it is, I don't think you've gotten at this part of the book yet. When you first meet someone, what part of the body do you look at first? If you had to just guess. I would guess sort of eyes, mouth, that kind of thing, you know, trying to read their expressions, but is that accurate? So that is the most common guess is eyes, mouth, face. But actually, when we look at eye tracking studies, we find that people very quickly first look at the hands. Ah. And this is really key. And it's a very easy thing to learn. The reason we do this is it's a survival mechanism. So back in our caveman days... You've seen if they're a threat. Yes, exactly. So two things. One is you're thinking, am I safe with this person, right? Are they going to reach out and punch me? Are they carrying a weapon, whatever? But second is are they going to acknowledge me? And if you think about this, hands are actually our first form of acknowledgement. We wave, we handshake, we fist bump, right? We might go in for the hug. And so as humans, we had this very, very deep desire to be acknowledged and we love to be acknowledged. And so like, for example, the best public speakers come out on stage and actually acknowledge the audience typically with a hand or a point. 
typically. So they wave or they point at somebody in the audience and say, thank you, good to see you. They're showing that they don't have a weapon in their hands. Exactly. <laughs> I'm totally going to try that next time I speak. Yeah, so try it because so it's like, I'm safe, I'm safe, friend, friend, friend. And then it's also, I see you, I hear you, I want to be with you. What does hands in pocket communicate, in your opinion? Like somebody walks out and they stick one hand in their pocket right away and they look down at the stage and they start talking. So there is research on this and it's very, very clear, which is, for example, when defendants put their hands in their lap or in their pocket, so jurors can't see them, jurors rate those defendants as more sneaky, untrustworthy, and difficult to get along with. The reason for this is actually something that we are not consciously aware of, which is when we can't see someone's hands, the fear part of our amygdala begins to activate. So if someone comes out with their hands in their pocket, it's actually, without even realizing it, we think, ah, uh, I don't know about this guy. I don't know. And that's because part of your brain is going, I cannot see intention and I feel ignored. Even though that's not true. Yeah, they're just nervous. Yes, exactly. And so what's really important here is visible, of course, but also leading hands first. And what I mean by that is twofold. One is making sure that you're acknowledging the person you're with. It's a very, very important facet of warmth. So this could be a wave. Ideally, it's a handshake, like ideally. Um, but any kind of acknowledgement, even across a room, the people who work a room, quote unquote, work a room, we actually did an experiment with 500 speed networkers where we filmed in every corner of the room. We watched people move through the room and we found there were distinct patterns of how they worked the room. And really, really good, highly charismatic people get in the room and they acknowledge five to 10 people in the first few seconds with just eyebrow raises, points, and waves. Literally. It's like they're working the room before they even start talking to anyone. They're letting people know I'm going to get to you. Yes. And I acknowledge you and I see you and I'm excited about the fact that we have the opportunity to talk tonight. Like think about when you were in the lunchroom at high school. If you walked into a giant lunchroom and someone across the room waved and beckoned you over. Yes, yes, yes. Greatest yes, yes. feeling in the world. It's the same thing today. So first, hands first, like trying to acknowledge someone immediately, even before you walk up to them. Second, and this is where it gets a little bit more, um, this is the advanced level tip for my advanced listeners. So we did a massive study on TED Talks, and we analyzed hundreds of hours of TED Talks looking for patterns, specifically body language patterns. We also did verbal patterns as well. We found that one of the biggest differences was on average, the most viewed TED Talkers use 465 hand gestures in 18 minutes, whereas the least viewed TED Talks use an average of 272 hand gestures in 18 minutes. I'm sewing the pockets of my pants closed. <laughs> You should. You actually should. Or put oh, sandpaper in them. Or put sandpaper in them. <laughs> oh, that's smart. <laughs> so I don't buy dresses with pockets. Like all of my speaking dresses don't have pockets, so that I don't, I'm not even tempted. So there's two things going on here, we think. And so when we did this study, it was fascinating to see this huge difference. My, By the way, thank you to my researchers who painstakingly counted every single <laughs> hand gesture. We love you. Two things going on. One, yes, they were visible. So I'm here, I'm friend, I'm friend. The second thing, though, is very powerful, and it's that our hands are visual representations of our concepts. Really competent speakers are basically saying to you, I know my content so well that I can speak to you on two tracks. I can have a verbal track running at you, but I can also non-verbally demonstrate my ideas and my concepts along with my words. And as audience members, that's where the competence comes into play, where we go, wow, this person is not only speaking to me very eloquently, but they're actually highlighting underlining and bolding as they speak. 
that's where I think the really best speakers come into play. So with your elevator pitch, with your presentations, with your client pitches, don't just think about the slides as visual representations of your concepts. I also want you to think about what I call nonverbal scripting. So this is not interpretive dance. However, when we say something is a big idea, the size of my hands, if I'm carrying a beach ball versus a basketball versus a ping pong ball, that shows you kind of metaphorically speaking, how big is this idea? And they should match. You should have your hand gestures and your words be congruent. So think about your next pitch. Think about your elevator pitch. How could you outline or bold the concepts that you really want people to remember? Because your hand gestures anchor those concepts. That's incredible. Okay, so we talked about control. So we opened the interview with. This was about capturing your audience. Part of it is showing your hands. But you also talked about being a winner with your launch stance. You talk about having the right amount of eye contact. This is all on page 51 of the book. Next, spark. How to have a dazzling conversation. And you recommend abandoning social scripts. Does this mean don't talk about the weather or our jobs? To change our small talk into big talk. Can you give us a tip there? Yeah. Okay. So if I have one challenge that I would love people to kind of walk away with, it's let's go on a, what do you do diet? And what I mean, (laughs) okay. So like, I don't love diets, but this is the one diet I'm like fully, fully in in, in support of. When you ask, what do you do? How are you? Or where are you from? A couple of things happen in the brain. One is it goes to sleep. Mm. Two is it goes on autopilot. Literally, it's like it shifts into autopilot because we can have that conversation in our sleep. You're basically telling the other person, I don't really need to be awake for this and neither do you, which is the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah. What I like to think of is I like to think of every social interaction as a chemical cocktail. So chemically speaking, the chemicals we want to produce in a very, very good interaction are oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. I want to focus on one right now because obviously we can't geek out for hours on this, but one of them is dopamine. So dopamine simplified. This is dopamine is a complicated little molecule, but it's produced when we feel excitement or pleasure. And it is what we remember. So Dr. John Medina, a great researcher, found that when you produce dopamine in the other person, the other person creates a kind of mental post-it note for you. In other words, if you make someone feel good, their brain goes, ooh, this person, we like you. We like you, this person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just positive association. Yeah. And like, they're more likely to remember your name. They're more likely to remember what you talked about. They're more likely to remember you when you reach out to them on LinkedIn. They're more likely to remember you when you see them again at an event three months later. So the entire goal of sparking or captivating people is asking dopamine-worthy conversation starters. So some of my favorites are just slight variations on how are you or, or what do you do? So for example, instead of what do you do, I usually ask, working on anything exciting these days? That's usually what I ask. What's nice about that also, and I I won't go too far into this if you don't want to, John, but I think that some people, they don't want to be defined by what they do, especially if they're not in their passion job or they're not in a job that they particularly like. And I think if you say to someone, you know, working on anything exciting recently, or you keep busy these days, you're giving someone a gift by allowing them to tell you what they feel defines them. So they might say, you know, oh, you know what? I'm in marketing, but my true passion is to be a woodworker. <laughs> you know, I just started a company, a side hustle on blanky blank. That I think gives someone another kind of a gift, which is setting them up to be able to talk about something they actually enjoy as opposed to dictating what you want to hear. My go-to question these days has been, what's the next big thing you're looking forward to? Mm. But I'm extremely guilty of what do you do and how have you been? So I'm going to go on that diet. 
next time you see me. I'll... We'll lose verbal weight together, Don. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Okay, we don't have time to get through this list. People are going to have to get the book. It's called Captivate. But I do want to close. I actually have a couple of things. One little section of this, you talk about control, capture, spark, highlight. We've covered some of that. But by the way, she's only covering one little bit of each one of these. Listen with purpose and always search for the good. This sounds so Mr. Rogers. Mm. <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment. One of the things that this documentary said, the gentleman who made the documentary was 30-something years old, had a job at MTV, went to his mom's place on Nantucket Island and discovered Mr. Rogers was actually his neighbor. That oh. Mr. Rogers had a, can you imagine, had a place on Nantucket and it was his 30th birthday. He had never met Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers came kind of wandering across the lawn and said, where is this birthday boy? I want to meet him. Oh. And that's how they met. That's how he met Mr. Rogers. Now, he was so captivated by Mr. Rogers, he ends up years later making a documentary about him. That was the impression that Mr. Rogers had on him. But one of the things that he said, that Mr. Rogers said, he said he sat him down and within about 10 minutes said, I want you to tell me about your parents' divorce. Mm. And he just went to this place that a lot of us wouldn't go. And he listened with this extreme purpose. And that's one of the things you say to do, listen with purpose. Wouldn't you have loved to have met Mr. Rogers and diagnose him in a positive oh. sense? What do you mean by listen with purpose? Yeah. Well, first of all, the greatest compliment I think anyone could give me is comparing me to Mr. Rogers. I know. Any- that's true. <laughs> that's so true. Especially today when we're so hungering for you know, a voice like that. Oh gosh, I will take it. Okay. So one of the things I've found as a recovering awkward person is that when people would tell me things like make good conversation or be interested to be interesting, those concepts work, but I was always like, give me the meat here. Like, I don't know what that means. So one thing that I found took down my awkwardness in conversations was trying to listen with some kind of an end goal. So the biggest enemy during chit chat or rapport building or talking to a colleague over the water cooler or at a networking event is that the conversations can be aimless. Aimlessness produces anxiety. It produces no dopamine usually makes us fall into those habitual questions. So I found that if you could give someone an end goal, they had reasons to ask questions, reasons to listen, and it added a kind of purpose to the conversation. I think that purpose is the next confidence. So my favorite purpose, my favorite purpose in every conversation is to try to get the other person to have a me too moment with you. So a me too moment is basically any time where you're talking to someone and they go, oh gosh, yes, me too. Or, oh, I'm the same. Or, oh yeah, totally, that's me. It's that really amazing moment. And this is serotonin. So serotonin, again, this is very simplified, but serotonin is the chemical that makes us feel belonging, Mm. makes us feel accepted. It makes us feel heard. And most importantly, it makes us feel calm. And so the moment that we feel like you are like me or we have the same experience, and it can be as small as, don't you love these egg rolls? Oh, yeah, they're (laughs) delicious, right? That's a little burst of serotonin, like we are the same, all the way up until, you know, going deep with, you know, asking about someone's history or family history. So what I like to do is every question that I ask is I am searching for some kind of a me too. So this could be casual, like, hey, you know, watching anything fun on Netflix right now, or, you know, I'm totally addicted to uh, the new Rajneesh Puram documentary and they go, oh, isn't it so great? The more Me Too moments you can have, the more dopamine, the more serotonin, the better the conversation. And so that's actually what I mean when I say listen for good, is you're listening for that spark of, yes, you and me are on the same page. And can you get that even when somebody talks about you know something they watch on Netflix and you haven't seen it? You just go, yeah, yeah, tell me about that because I'm looking for something to watch. Tell me why you like that. Oh, I love those things. 
Without being coming sort of the classic politician, it's just an enthusiasm about what they're enthusiastic about. Is that helpful? Yeah. So like, for example, if you mention a show and someone says, oh, I haven't seen it. Well, then you can go for excitement, right? Oh, it's so good. You kind of like drop a little tidbits. You ask them about it. That's about dopamine, right? That's like creating kind of um, suspense or excitement versus if someone says, yes, I've seen it and I love it. That's a shared moment of, oh my gosh, did you see that episode? Wasn't that crazy when that happened? Oh, wow. Those are two very lovely feelings, but they're actually different. Excitement versus that me too. I love it. We've scratched the surface. We've gotten nowhere, and yet I feel like I have a year's worth of work to be done here, just based on what you've said so far. Again, everybody, the book is called Captivate. Let's all get this book in practice. It's going to make us so much less awkward at parties. Vanessa, where is your next workshop and when? Our next big one is People School. So People School is kind of like uh, all the people skills I never learned in school. Um, And our next launch is online. So that's going to be our online course. And I'll let you know about dates. But that's all my website, sciencepeople.com. Scienceofpeople.com. Okay, I'm writing it down. Vanessa, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I think we could have gone another five hours. Easily. Well, I cannot wait to do it again. And we're both going to drop some of that verbal weight. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks. You were wonderful. Isn't she fascinating? Yeah. Were you wondering what she was doing? What, while what, what, she was talking. What, yeah, while she yeah. was talking. <laughs> yeah. I, I never, it's kind of like people are like, well, since you know so much about story, does it really ruin movies? Because kind of joke that ruins, it doesn't. Yeah. I get lost in stories all the same. And even though she was probably doing things, I'm yeah. like, I like you. You're really, you're really nice. You <laughs> she seem was using to, her tricks on yeah, you. Yeah. You seem like a winner who likes me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> she probably was doing that stuff. Yeah. Like I said, I geek out on this. Again, the book is called Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with people. I think it's the best book that I've read 50 pages of on the subject, (laughs) and I'm going to read the rest of it tonight. It's really, really good. Next week, Allie Trowbridge is back. She's our correspondent on the run, and she has a fascinating interview with two guys, Jared Blandino and Jeremy Johnson. They have a company called Two-Faced. That's T-O-O faced (laughs) jj these guys started behind the makeup counter at estee lauder so can you imagine they're friends they started behind the makeup counter at estee lauder and they began doing all sorts of fun stuff making better eyeshadow by combining other stuff like that yeah they started this company called Two Face based on that experience, and they ended up selling that company to (laughs) estee lauder back to estee lauder (laughs) for how much 1.5 Billion dollars. Billion. Dollars. <laughs> That's billion. A lot That's of eyeshadow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's cool. a fascinating success story. And they have a blast with Allie. I want to play you a little clip so you make sure to tune in next week. Here's Allie talking to Jared Blandino and Jeremy Johnson of Two Faced. You have to get up and you have to keep going. Yeah. Failure isn't an option. In fact, you learn more from your mistakes than sometimes you do your successes. So they're all gifts in the end, and they all make sense because when we were dealing with, what, $50,000, $500,000, you'll be dealing with $500 million tomorrow. Yeah. And you learn those lessons early so you don't repeat them when the stakes are even much higher. Yeah, but those felt like really high stakes at the time. Oh, yeah. You th- oh, yeah. I don't think we ever felt like we were... I mean, there was always times like we got a little nervous. We never, ever once said, oh, this isn't going to work out. No, really? like we've never, never once have we ever said that. Really? We, we did like, you know, it wasn't easy. There's a lot of times you don't eat and you don't sleep and, you know. peanut butter <clears throat> and jelly sandwiches. Yeah. Everything, every moment's yeah. make or break though. You know, when you're yeah. building a company and you, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to understand this. Every move you make feels like it's a do or die or make or break. And sometimes they are, but you just have to keep going and you have to do your best. 
So there we go. That's next week. Listen, if you haven't subscribed to the Building Story Brand podcast, you want to do it now, just go to iTunes and subscribe. That way it shows up on your phone automatically. You don't miss a beat. This is a good one. Yeah. This is one that I'm going to actually listen to Yeah, over it's going to change everything. It's going to change really? everybody, yeah, everybody in the best possible yeah. way. <laughs> I love it. Vanessa, thanks for coming on the show. Please come back and see us. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to make people like you. <laughs>